A word of warning. This podcast may contain themes that some listeners might find distressing. Not always, but sometimes. However, this podcast will definitely contain strong language. Therefore, if neither of these things sound appealing, it's probably not the podcast for you then, is it? I woke up on Friday morning at 4am to a message that one of my friends back home had killed himself. This is uh, five hours before me weighing. So Ricky, lad, that's for you. But... There's a stigma in this world that men can't talk. Listen, if you're a man and you've got weight on your shoulders and you think the only way you can solve this by killing yourself, please speak to someone. Speak to anyone. People would rather, I know I'd rather me make cry on my shoulder than go to his funeral next week. So please, let's get rid of this stigma and men start talking. Men just kill themselves and no one cares. We need to change it. There's no funding for men's mental health and it's the biggest killer for men between like 21 and 45. And no one talks about it. No one even mentions it, lad. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Nicest Ramblings podcast with me, the Nicest Psychologist. Um, I've been off on a break so this is season two (laughs) i guess although not really um i don't know what this is but it's uh, me back after some time off um some time off away from my social media account some time off from this podcast just to kind of um i don't know take a bit of a mental break and recuperate and rejuvenate uh not quite sure how much i've recuperated or rejuvenated and i'm still experiencing I don't know, a bit of a creative block in relation to my account, but um, it is what it is, uh, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, But thank you for joining me for today's episode, uh, which is the second half of a longer discussion um, that started last year um, about men's mental health and whether anyone cares about it. Um, I suppose briefly and for context, um, these episodes developed after some discussion I had on my Instagram page following some statements made by uh, UFC fighter Paddy the Batty Pimblet uh, a few days after a friend of his took his own life. Um, those were the sound bites that were played at the start of this episode. Um, the statement about there being no funding for men's mental health and you know the fact that no one cares about men's mental health struck me as odd. Um, so I put the question about this to my followers to get a wider perspective of views because you know um, I like to you know generate more viewpoints to kind of um, get a get an idea of whether the, the things that I think about are generally shared or if there are other perspectives um, to be held. Um, and so the the feedback. Um, was essentially broken down into two camps. So some of my followers noted that there were internal barriers to men seeking help for their mental health, um, while uh, while others noted that there were more external barriers. The internal barriers uh, were discussed in part one of this discussion, uh, which is episode 14. If you want to sort of, you know, if you've not listened, then you want to just stop this and go back um, and have a listen. Um, While the external barriers will be discussed here, um, and hopefully there will be you know, some kind of conclusion towards the end as to whether there is a lack of mental health provision for men and if, in fact, no one cares about men's mental health. Um, This section, this discussion around external barriers to men seeking mental health support 
um, I found really fascinating, actually, mostly because some of the things discussed from from this side of things I'd not really considered before. Um, and some I was a bit like, yeah, I can see where you're coming from, but you're not really convinced me. But before I continue, um, it might be worth noting that, you know, this section, this discussion, this part of the discussion will contain reference to um, the different categories um, of primary, secondary and tertiary healthcare. Um, and seeing as I, someone who works in the NHS, um, have not always understood the difference between the three, I thought it might be helpful to quickly explain the differences. So according to the Mind Charity website, primary health care is often the first point of contact when somebody has any health care needs. Uh, this is covered by professions like GPs, dentists and pharmacists, um, while secondary health care are services which uh, generally require referrals from a GP. Um, in terms of mental health services, this would probably be things like psychiatric hospitals, psychological well-being services, you know, such as IAP services, uh, which stand for Improving Access to Psychological Therapies, um, as well as community mental health teams. Teams, uh, also known as CMHTs, and crisis crisis home resolution teams, uh, CHRTs, or sometimes known as home treatment teams. Um, tertiary education um, is considered to be sort of specialised treatment, um, and in the case of mental health care, this would be considered something like um, forensic health services. Um, <laughs> which you know, uh, turns out I work in ter- tertiary healthcare. Uh, so who knew? Also. This episode is not meant to diminish anyone's mental health struggle. Um, You know, I'm very aware that in general mental health services in the UK are stretched, uh, underfunded and, you know, generally not accessible for for a number of reasons. Um, There are long waiting lists, burnt out staff, and there remains a general persistence in terms of the stigma and lack of understanding about mental health that generally makes it more difficult for everyone to get help, Um, you know, for everyone to get the help that they need. Um, Also, as I noted in the previous podcast episode, I'm not taking aim at Paddy Pimblett um, and, you know, the intention of his initial messages. Um, In fact, there's recently been um, something in the news about someone saying that, uh, you know, Paddy Pimblett's words saved his life, which is amazing. Um, The aim of this podcast, rather, is to look at the sort of accuracy of some of the statements that were made, which by and large appear to be, I guess, an accepted narrative around men's mental health. Um, So with that in mind, I hope you can listen to this episode um, with an open mind. Anyway, external barriers. So one of the areas that I can kind of understand where people are coming from, but I also don't, you know, fully buy is the idea that therapy is feminized. Yes, you heard me correctly. There's an idea out there that therapy is feminized. Um, The premises of this particular barrier um, appear to be twofold. Um, So firstly, therapy and therapists, and the fact that the field of mental health and psychology in general is is a female-dominated field. Um, While secondly, alongside this, is the idea that most therapies are emotion-focused and require talking about feelings. Um, Again, things that are not necessarily wrong, which is why I can appreciate the idea that therapy is feminized. Uh, You know, lots of women in the field, and the primary modality of therapy is something that has been classed as feminine, you know, that being talking, um, and that the main focus is on emotions. Again, an aspect of the human condition that is associated with you know women and femininity so therefore the issue that supposedly arises is that men might be less likely to engage engage with uh, and discuss their difficulties with women and that talking about their emotions is something that men generally struggle with so you know a focus on talking about emotions may dissuade them from accessing therapy because supposedly men are more solution focused uh, and prefer doing rather than talking so okay there's a few things to point out um, <clears throat> and to highlight that I think is, you know, somewhat strange um, and, you know, that makes this a somewhat flawed argument. So the first thing that I find interesting 
or wonder about is the idea of you know therapy being considered feminine by virtue of the fact that women primarily you know work in this field um does the same concern apply to the area of general health care um is general health care considered feminine too uh because there's a strong feminine bias of women <clears throat> there's a str- sorry there's a strong gender bias of women working in the caring professions but i wouldn't necessarily consider general health care to be feminine um i wonder if this is because you know despite the fact that um women make up 77% of the nhs workforce they still make up the minority of senior positions so it may be um so maybe it's less uh, there's less consideration of general health care being thought of as feminine because those in the more senior perhaps more visible positions are men um but still if the worry is that mental health care is female dominant, um, why does the same worry not exist for general health care? Uh, not sure that any men are refusing to go to you know general hospitals and A and E because there are too many female NHS staff there. Um, so you know perhaps maybe it does have to do with the fact that um, the most senior positions are filled by men. So by that logic, you would imagine that if um, more visible positions within general health care are filled by men, that on the whole men would be okay with visiting primary health care services like the GP, which up until 2017 was primarily dominated by men. Uh, some of you may be interested to know that in that same year, in the UK, 54% of GPs were women. Um, so, however... Uh, that's not necessarily the case. Um, in an article by The Guardian written in 2012, um, so five years before women occupied just over half of all GP positions, uh, men were still only likely to visit the GP four times a year, while women would still visit the GP on average six times a year, so 50% more. Similarly, men were likely to visit a pharmacy four times a year compared to women's average of 18 times a year. The same article highlighted that 9 in 10 men did not want to trouble the doctor or pharmacist unless they had a serious problem, leading the article to conclude that men aren't taking full advantage of the support to maintain good health, which is available for free, uh, which is available free of charge on their doorstep. Also, I don't know about you, but, you know, I only really realised how female dominated the field of psychology and mental health was once I actually entered it. Um, I might be wrong about this. And, you know, being an imperfect human, there is usually a high chance that I'm wrong about certain things. But I think that the predominant perceived gender of therapists and psychologists is still largely masculine and male, you know, based on the fact that those who are considered to have pioneered um, the development of psychology are males, you know, or men. Uh, like Freud, Jung, Beck, Rogers, so on and so forth. Um, I'm not sure that the average Joe would know that the most therapists or psychologists are women. Um, in fact, there was an Australian study done in 2003, which is over 20 years ago, I admit, but the results are still intriguing, uh, where adults were asked to draw images of what they thought a typical psychologist looked like. And based on 119 drawings, it was found that psychologists were largely perceived to be middle-aged men. But the shift in in psychology becoming female dominant is relatively recent. Um, In a 2011 article examining the shift in gender in psychology, which I won't lie, if you read the article, it feels a little bit like a panicked, what are we going to do now that all the females are entering psychology piece? Um, It was noted that the percentage of psychology PhDs awarded to men had fallen from nearly 70% in 1975 to less than 30% in 2008. Um, But whilst the shift might be noticeable in those within the field i do wonder how much this is picked up you know in the general public but again i am potentially wrong about this shift um 
<clears throat> and it has been occurring for like over the last 20 years. So uh, I could be wrong. But if anybody wants to do a follow-up to that 2003 Australian study to see if the perception of psychologists and therapists has changed, you know, I would uh, go for it. Something else I found interesting was the apparent inference that men would have difficulty opening up to a female therapist. Um, one of the things about the current state of masculine culture is about not looking weak uh, in front of or admitting one's weakness to other men. So the question I would ask is, would a man feel okay with opening up to another man more than he would a woman? Um, because if we are, we are agreeing with this gendered stereotype of how therapy is viewed, surely if men are looking for someone to listen to them who stereotypically would be able to understand and empathize and would not be judgmental of their experiences, would they not want that to be, again stereotypically, a woman? I mean, this is obviously all theoretical because I, you know, while I do believe that the gender of a therapist can influence a therapeutic relationship and has its barriers, as a male psychologist working in a women's prison, I'm acutely aware of this particular therapeutic barrier. It can also serve as a facilitator. So it's possible some men might find it, you know, tough to talk to women, um, to a woman therapist. Um, but equally, some men find it might find it more reassuring and containing. Um, and I guess my final thought on, you know, this idea of therapy being feminized is so what? Um, if it is fem if it is feminized and it is something that is considered to be more feminine, why is that so bad? Um, while delving into this topic, there's been further inference that men are potentially a hard to reach target population, and therefore therapy and mental health interventions should be tailored to be male friendly. There is literature out there to suggest that in order to make therapy more accessible to men, it should be masculinized. Um, how should this be done? Good question. Um, in their textbook, Perspectives on Male Psychology, uh, John Barry and Louise Lidden suggest 11 ways in which to make therapy more male-friendly, uh, relating to the therapist, the type of therapy, and techniques used. So in relation to the therapist, considerations suggested are being empathetic, client-centered, value masculine norms, utilizing a client's characteristics. Uh, so the example here is to use sport as a metaphor for recovery if a male client likes sport, which again, sure, you know, um, but also metaphors are quite common practice to help clients understand concepts, um, you know, etc. But also, you know, women understand sports metaphors too. Um, so sorry, c carrying on. The other considerations are uh, considering demographics like age, ethnicity, education level, um, but also then the sex of the therapist, uh, which I've just, you know, touched on already. Um, so these things might be important to consider, you know, if you're a therapist. In relation to therapy, it's suggested that males might prefer an indirect approach. The example given here is that men might try to solve a problem um, rather than want to focus on their emotions um, and that male groups should be offered alongside individual therapy. Um, while in relation to therapeutic techniques, it is suggested that therapists consider language, you know, they, uh, sorry, they consider the language they use. Uh, they might think about using nonverbal communication uh, like avoiding direct eye contact, which could make men feel uncomfortable. Um, and last, last but not least, therapists should use banter. <sighs> so I suppose what's interesting is that apart from two things mentioned, um, you know, that being valuing masculine norms and the interesting suggestion of avoiding eye contact, which, yeah, not quite sure what to make of that one. Everything else is pretty much exactly the same as how I and, you know, many other therapists that I know would work with clients. While I'm not saying that, you know, while I'm not saying that any of this won't be helpful, my query is why is it necessary, especially when there's loads of research to suggest that the current therapeutic models that um, 
exist work for both men and women in a 2014 editorial review of research looking into the differences in outcomes of treatment of depression between men and women the editorial concluded that patient-centered treatment using medication and or psychotherapy that explores the psychosocial context of depression is likely to give the best chance of patient compliance and satisfaction regardless of gender Basically, if the person seeking therapy is the focus of the intervention and their mental illness is formulated in a way that is specific to that person and takes into account all the things that that person, um, you know, takes into account all the things about that person, one of which can be their gender, then the intervention should work. Therefore, there is no specific need to, you know, masculinize therapy because if a man seeks therapy, he will already be masculinized by virtue of the fact that the therapist will focus on and deal things you know, specific to that man and his circumstances. Okay, so I seem to have said a lot more about therapy being feminized than I intended. My bad. Moving on. The second internal barrier highlighted from our online discussion was that of the responses of services to men who seek mental health support. So, I'll admit, this was one of the more interesting points that I had not necessarily considered. In a very brief discussion with one follower... Um, a fellow psychologist from the south of the country, they noted that their community mental health team saw an equal number of men and women referred to the service, but that men were sometimes deemed too risky to work um, to work with for reasons of verbal and physical aggression. As a consequence, these men were often signposted to local charities to receive support for their mental health, uh, which, is in, which is an interesting response, and it made me think two things. The first is the fact that... Um, you know, the men who have mental health issues are not necessarily the only ones that hold on to ideals of masculinity. So it's very possible that those who work in the services that men access may also hold on to these views, as with the example of turning men away because they are automatically automatically assumed to be more violent than women, um, which may be further exacerbated when coupled with the potential unpredictability of how some men um, might present when they're unwell. I'd like to caveat this by highlighting that not everyone who is mentally ill can become violent or aggressive, but in this instance it seems noteworthy. Um, but at the same time, there's also some evidence to the contrary, because at the level of sort of CMHT referral, so community mental health team referral and above, um, so here we're sort of talking about secondary and tertiary mental health care, there is a lot more provision for men than for women. So let me explain. Um so in general, there are less psychiatric beds for women than there are for men. Um, in terms of psychiatric provision, mental health provision, everything sort of seems to be measured in the number of beds available. But across the UK, there seems to be far more psychi psychiatric beds available for men than there are for women. Um, and this only gets more concentrated when you move sort of into forensic psychiatry. Um, I can't find like any official documents that evidence this, but I know this from my years working on psych psychiatric wards um, for this to be the case, at least anecdotally anyway. Again, someone let me know if I'm wrong. But alongside this, there's the relatively recent literature to suggest that even when admitted to psychiatric services, women's needs are not necessarily fully met. And here I quote from an executive summary of a 2018 report commissioned by the department, um, the UK Department of Health and Social Care. The quote goes, mental health services have been designed, whether consciously or unconsciously, around the needs of men. The executive summary goes on to say that women's roles as mothers and carers were not necessarily considered in terms of the support they receive and that the relationship between gender-based violence, trauma and poor mental health was overlooked. At the same time, though, I would argue that the impact of trauma should be considered in relation to mental illness regardless of gender. 
So there seems to be a bit of a paradox in terms of the responses to men by services. On the one hand, services may be influenced in some way by the underlying assumptions and biases around men when they're mentally unwell. But at the same time, there appears to be a lot more resource provision when they do become acutely or chronically unwell. And their needs appear to be sort of more automatically catered for while they're in these services. And finally... One of the final points that was made in the overall discussion about this was that there seemed to be no promotion for men or reaching out to men to access mental health support. As noted earlier, some would consider men to be a hard-to-reach population. Now, this is somewhat tricky because I would agree and disagree with this. I would argue that some men might be harder to reach than others, and this would ne- this would sort of depend on which type of men we're talking about. Because I would argue that men fall into men that fall into any number of intersectional categories could potentially be harder to reach than others. As part of their effort to try and reduce health inequalities, the NHS has looked into where different health inequalities exist, and they've identified that often health inequalities, and in this instance mental health inequalities, exist in relation to sexual orientation and gender, ethnicity, which could also include race and potentially migrant status, disability and accommodation type. So men who fall into these categories, I would argue, are probably the ones that could be considered hard to reach. In an interview for the Metro for an article about male suicide uh, in the black community, Alex Holmes, a therapist and author of the book A Time to Talk, great book by the way, you should definitely get it, had this to say. The specific intersection of what it means to be a black man, a black trans and or queer man, or a black differently abled man at this time is definitely impacting our mental health. The systems are not in place to support us, and there are still many many cultural stigmas, both intraculturally and interculturally, that impact on how we show up in the world. Show up to the world. At the same time, I am also stumped by the assertion that there is no effort to engage men in mental health discussions or create awareness. I've purposefully held back on releasing this podcast episode, um, which I was originally going to release in November 2022. The reason why I didn't release it because it was also the month of November, which is an entire month dedicated to raising awareness about men's physical and mental health. And I didn't want this episode to be received at a time when the focus should be on, you know, sort of further creating awareness around men's mental health. Um, I think the irony might have offended some people. Um, But not only that, there's also Men's Health Week in June, which is also used to raise awareness about men's mental health issues. Alongside this, there are a number of charity organisations that are explicitly aimed at fostering environments for men to open up and be... um, to open up more about their struggles. So for example, there's Man Down in Cornwall, which is a non-profit charity that offers peer support groups for men. Then there's Andy's Man's Club, uh, which is a men's suicide charity that similarly offers peer support groups in various locations across the UK. Uh, Human currently offers non-judgmental online support groups every Monday for men who may be struggling with their mental health and who might be having thoughts of suicide. Um, And they may also be moving towards, uh, you know, in-person support groups. Then there's something called the Changing Room, which is uh, supported by the Scottish Association for Mental Health, um, an initiative which provides a 12-week program using football to bring men together to discuss mental health. And those are just some of the examples that I could find. Um, These organizations are linked in the show notes, um, but they come from quite a simple Google search, uh, so it's not hard to find them. Um, And I know that this isn't a competition, but just to give you some context, there isn't necessarily this dearth of mental health support charities um, and groups that exist for women. The other interesting thing to think about is um, that it is commonly understood that there's a gap in male health um, across the world. So according to the website manual, 
um, a website that offers advice on you know various different men's health issues. So anything from hair loss to sexual health and also mental health. They de- they define a health gap as differences in prevalence of disease, health outcomes, both physical and mental. Um, or access to healthcare across different groups. Um, and men's health gap, and a men's health gap is defined as a male health gap is when women are generally healthier across their lives than men. The top 10 countries that have um, male health gaps uh, fell largely within the sort of region of Eastern Europe. So with Georgia ranking as the country with the worst male health gap, followed by Belarus, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, uh, Ukraine, Armenia, Moldova, the Russian Federation, some place called Mauritania, which I've never heard of, um, and Slovakia. Um, And because mental health falls under sort of overall health provision, one would imagine that countries that had um, male health gaps would also have uh, male health, male mental health gaps, right? Um, So if the UK, so so I guess the question then is, if the UK does indeed provide poorly for men's mental health and it is something that is not considered, then you might expect the UK to have a male health gap too, right? Interestingly, though, the UK is not one of the countries um, with a male health gap. Um, In fact, in the UK, it's quite the opposite. According to the same website, the UK ranks um, the UK ranks 12th in the top countries that have uh, that have female health gaps. So just to be clear, overall in the UK, health outcomes are worse for women than they are for men. And again, this would include mental health outcomes. So I guess it seems like a good point to try and answer the overall question into this, you know, sort of exploration into men's mental health provision, um, which is in the UK, does no one care about men's mental health? Um, and I guess I might have to cop out on this one and let you make up your own mind. Um, I think that for me to come to an absolute conclusion would be somewhat arrogant as I'm not necessarily somebody who's um, potentially affected by difficulties with their mental health. And to say one way or the other is potentially invalidating for anyone listening. But I guess the one thing that I have learned from doing these two episodes to thinking about um, barriers to men accessing men's um, to men accessing mental health services is that there um, are a lot of things to consider. Some of them are internal and they do, and you know, at the same time, there do appear to be a few external barriers. Um, how insurmountable are these external barriers? Well, I guess that depends on the color of your skin or who you fall in love with and whether you think that something being considered feminine is more of an issue than your mental health needs. Um, there also appears to be quite a lot of available support um, and efforts to promote men's mental health, uh, something that doesn't necessarily seem to be equally championed for any other genders. Um, but I hope, though, at the very least, I've provided you with some evidence that might make you think about and question, um, you know, the, the 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 statements that prompted these two podcast episode uh, podcast episodes, um, and come to a conclusion for yourself. And I guess you know the final thing to say is that if you are a man who is struggling with their mental health please do consider getting in touch with your GP. Alternatively, please look up at, you know, any of the charities mentioned in this podcast episode and find a group of lads who are willing to listen to you. Um, there is also the option, if it's possible, to talk to your friends or family. I know this makes it sound a lot easier than it actually might be, um, but if there's anything that I've learned in my time working with men and even taking into account my own hesitancy and resistance to admitting when things are tough, um, is that you know we can sometimes be our own worst enemy. Okay. Um, 
thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this ramble um as always if you think that um, somebody somewhere would find this episode interesting or may benefit from listening to it please share uh please also uh, like rate um and leave a comment uh, it really helps so much with letting others know about the show okay um until next time take care <laughs>